Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is a show about life's inflection points hosted by me, Asha Saluja. It's about the crossroads in our lives, which paths we choose when we reach them, and where those choices lead us or don't. We'll talk about the decisions we agonized over and the decisions we didn't even realize we were making until years after we made them. We'll talk about how we decide things, how we weigh our options, or how we tap into our intuitions. And we'll talk about the degree to which our choices matter. Do we have any control over the things that alter our fate? Or do we end up in the same place no matter which roads we take? On each show, I have a guest tell me about all the big decisions they've ever made in order. We start with birth, fast forward to their first big decision, and map out the road their life has taken as a series of these inflection points or junctions. With that, I will introduce today's very special guest who just flew in from Chicago, uh, like got off the plane and came to went to brunch and then came to Bushwick. So that's an honor. Cher Vincent is an audio producer based in Chicago, like I just said. You might have heard her work on Gimlet, on Spotify podcasts, and currently at One Illinois, a statewide online news outlet where she runs audio. Hi, Cher. Hi. Thank you for being here. Good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So the first question on Bushwick Junction is, tell me about where and when and how you were born. You don't have to give us a year. Don't date yourself. But tell me about the circumstances. Sure. So my mom and my father, they um, had been, they were married a couple of years and then they decided to have me. And um, I was born in the late 80s. So it kind of gives you an idea of like slap dab in the middle of the millennial generation. Mm. Yeah. And um, I was the firstborn. So um, I have a younger sister. She's just about two and a half years younger than me. But we grew up in Chicago. Um, I lived on the very far north side of Chicago um, until I was about three and then moved to the very far south of Chicago. And I lived there until I was about 12 and then moved to the inner city in the neighborhood called Hyde Park. And that's where I spent most of my formative years. Chicago is your big Chicago energy. You, you've lived here for a few years at yeah. some point, but yeah. you're, you're mostly there. Mostly Chicago. Yeah. So Chicago is, yeah, it's home. And um, sometimes I kind of feel like, oh, no, Chicago is not about it. It's got to it's got to fix itself. It's a hot mess. But then that um, every so often I fall back in love with the city in a true way. 
Yeah. And I know that feeling if anyone else says it's a hot mess. Like, you're allowed to say that. But if anyone yeah, else oh, says absolutely. that. Absolutely. It's like, I will come for you if you start shit talking in Chicago. I was like, wait, no, 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 no. This is not your city. You haven't been here long enough or you've only been there twice. Like, how dare you talk about Chicago? I extremely feel that. Yeah. I'm from Miami, which, like, as a place shouldn't exist, probably. <laughs> but if anyone else says that, I get angry. Yeah. I try not, I'm trying not to make this an astrology podcast, but what's your sign? I'll give you all three. Okay, hit me. I'm a Virgo sun. Wow. I'm an Aquarius moon. Okay. And I'm a Sag rising. Wow, I'm a Sag. Okay. Yeah, and well. you, okay, so I'm bad at not, like, I'm bad at hiding the elephant in the room, not calling you an <laughs> elephant, James, but Cher's friend, James, through whom we met, through whomst we met. Yes is in the studio is off mic but i i don't know i just it's the sagittarius in me i can't not say something that's happening yeah so that's yeah, happening I, I know his signs too because um, yeah you guys really have gross. some synergy yeah he's a, he, yeah he's a he's a virgo rising yeah wow and uh yeah and so i think like that definitely um i think when we work together and have worked together over the years i think that virgo-ness in our lives definitely worked as far as a, a good collaboration because he was always really good on my accountability but then also we both have a, a very type a approach to everything so um all of in like, the details so much in the details Amazing. So, next question. Okay. What is the first big decision you ever made? I thought about this for a while, and I feel like it might have been around age eight. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I say this because, you know, in hindsight, it kind of, all, it kind of started this way. Um, started all my, all my professional attributes and endeavors kind of started around this age um and i was trying to think about if this was a decision that i made myself or it was a decision that was kind of thrusted upon me but at eight is when i had um kind of um through my parents influence to in some ways realized my affinity for sciences wow yeah so when i was eight my dad got me a a lot of different like, educational science educational toys like remember like v-tech no it's like a z-tech i don't know if i know this thing okay it's like it's like an educational computer where they have like little inserts and uh, like little games they're like vocab games or like science games or whatever it's like an analog thing and you yeah. put like a thing in it yes. yeah okay i kind of yeah. know this yeah it's like v-tech and yeah. like a little it was a little laptop but yeah. it was like in, at age eight i got this and i got a microscope with like different um slides uh i got a beatman's world uh physics like um atoms with um, electrons, neurons, and um, protons, um, magnet, little set. It was all these like science gifts. And the big one was a lab coat that had my name monogrammed on it. Wow. Yeah. And it's like, you're going to be a, 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 a doctor, Cher. And I was like, okay. So wait, so I'm so curious. You're, yeah. ta you're talking about this as your decision. And exactly. I believe you. Yeah. But I'm something that fascinates me is it sounds like you had parents who were really invested in developing your brain and Very making you a successful person but yeah. did they also expose you to lots of 
reading, lots of everything, and you picked science? Yeah, so um, that was kind of, uh, that's why I decided that was kind of my first big decision, because my parents had read to me, you know, in the womb, they read to me, like, all through, like, my very early development, and I started reading my own when I was four. I was reading chapter books at six, so I was pretty early, like, I was reading a lot constantly, but my affinity for science kind of grew from my love of reading, and... I chose science to be the one that I was kind of just zone in. And I, at one point I had a bug collection. I was wow. very, <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I loved botany. I was very much into plants. You're lighting up right now. About yeah. Your, oh, I, I love this. Yeah. So it was like, it was what I was excited about the most constantly. And from that point on, everything that I did extracurricular outside of like tennis was science um, related or in pursuit of me potentially being into medical school. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so what came of that decision? Is that so that thread sort of stuck through the rest of your life? Um, to a point, yes. Um, up until maybe like five years ago, that was kind of where I was headed. I um, in high school and undergrad, I was pre-med and undergrad. It was what I was going to be doing. And up until after I graduated from, um, college, I was going to be a doctor, like to the MCATs, all of that. That was wow. what I was going to do. And then about three months before I was supposed to go to med school, I kind of, I, w- I don't want to call it a breakdown, but it was one of those like, fight or flight moments where um, I had to kind of pick a road and was it going to go down further into the rabbit hole and go to medical school or was it going to try to do something else? And Wait, I, so let's zoom in on this moment. Sure. What was the crossroads that you reached? Um, I got accepted to the med school that I wanted to get into and I didn't react the way I thought I was going to react. Hmm. Um. I was more blase about it, like, oh, yeah, so I got into this school. I, I won't name the school, but I got into it, and I was really, really excited. I really wanted to get into the school, and I took the MCAT three times in order to get into the school. And wow. and I did really well in all three times in my, for the MCATs, considering. Um, so out of 45, I got a 28 the first time, which is actually pretty good. Like, you can get into most medical schools with just that. And they're like, no, I want to be in the mid-30s. So that's what I was trying to get. The second time I got into the 32 was really good. And the third time I got was, honestly, people get very upset when I tell them when I got my MCAT score and then didn't go to medical school. Wow. I got a 41, which is, like, unheard of. No wow. one gets in the 40s. And um, I, yeah, I, I just... When I got when I got into medical school, I kind of just deflated. Hmm. It was it was everything that I had been working towards. You know, you know the every decision that I made was in pursuit of this eventuality where I was going to go to med school and become this doctor. And when I was at the threshold of that, it was the very last thing I wanted to do. And it took me a while to get to realize that. I think for most of that time when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next, I was in denial of that. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to med school. That's what I'm supposed to do. It wasn't a decision anymore. It was more of an obligation. And it, until I realized that w- what it was, I couldn't actually accept or enjoy the fact that I got into this medical school that I wanted to get into. Was it like... So before you got in, 
and you were working toward getting in, mm-hmm. could you picture your life as a doctor or could you just picture the moment where you got in? That's a good question. Um, I could see myself as a doctor, but... Did you think about it like, oh, I'll practice this kind mm-hmm. and I'll work at a... Yeah, I definitely had, like, I wanted to work in psychiatry. Oh, wow. Yeah, I wanted to be a child psychiatrist, actually. Um, and I could see... I can see myself in 20 years at that point. And for a while, it's exciting. And then as the closer I was getting to, you know, medical school, that image became more and more of a fear or like this. It felt like my entire life was just planned out in a way that I wasn't sure I wanted anymore. Mm. And I had saw like the back half of like the last, you know, 15 years of my life in school going to pursue this dream. And I wasn't sure it was my dream anymore. Did you think in that moment that it had been molded a lot by your family and your the, what they saw in you as a child? Yeah. And I think that was part of it, too. I think it was a lot of trying to appeal to them, trying to um, trying to make sure that I was I was I mean I was an overachiever I'd always been that way, but I was constantly feeling like I was getting their approval or trying to get their approval. And I was terrified of being in a position where I would have to say no in that. And I think when I finally came to the realization that this is not what I want anymore, I felt like, oh, oh, fuck. Now I'm like, and I was just like, okay, now what do I do now? And it was really intense and scary. But when I finally got to that point, I had a conversation with my parents. It's like, look, um, I don't think I can go to medical school. And they were way more supportive of my decision than I thought I was going to be, that they were going to be. And um, it was, yeah, I think, my mother, she was fine, but I think my dad was the one that I was more concerned about, and he was actually the more, he was the most, like, willing to accept what happened, and he was very, very nice about it, and very kind and generous about his emotions about it. And I forgot that, like, oh, they just love me, and they want to make sure that I'm happy, but I forgot that. I think I just was so fixated on their approval, so fixated on being what they wanted me to be that I forgot that, you know, all they really want is for me to be happy. And if that didn't, and if that meant not being a doctor, then that's okay. That is so real. That's such a powerful thing to like keep hold of because the reason they guided you toward being a doctor in the first place is for you to be happy. Right. Like they just wanted you to have a happy life doing something they thought that you liked. Right. Exactly. And I think like in my family, like my parents, my, my father and my mother, like my mother, she went to, my mother has like four degrees. So she, she has two bachelors, she has a master's and she has like all but the dissertation. She never, she never finished her dissertation, but like, education was really big on my mother and then my father he was in grad school for like seven years oh. like he just like took it forever but like he eventually you know finished his master's and then his life got you know exponentially better because he went to grad school for software engineering and you know was able to like you know 
Level up. Level up and support his family. And it was great. So I knew the power of education and what that meant. And I think my parents then just wanted me to be secure and have, you know, a stable income. And I think also a lot of the time that I was in school also affected some of their expectations of me. I was in school in the late aughts, early, I graduated college in 2011. So you know, of course, if you know your history, I was in school right around the crisis, yeah. you know, the Great Recession. So, you know, job security was not guaranteed when I got out of school. It was a little better by the time I got out of school. But like while I was in school, I was very much, you know, um, in a position where, you know, it. Does, I mean, I would have to go to medical school if I wanted a stable position, because if I went to school for, I don't know. Literally anything else. Literally anything else. Like, if I wasn't going to be a professional, if I was going to be an attorney, or if I was going to go to medical school or have, like, a job in tech, you know, I would be struggling for a long time. And it was scary. And I thought for a long time that I may not even be able to get out of this. Mm. That I would be kind of just stuck. And I didn't want to be stuck in in a profession like medicine because that's a job that you have to... You have to commit to. Yeah, like, you're committed for uh, yeah. forever. I mean, like, you know, even just medical school, it's four years and medical school is not cheap. It's very expensive. And, you know, I was afraid that if I started medical school and then hated it, I would have to stay in medical school and become a doctor so I can pay off medical school. It was just a lot of, you know, a lot of questions. And the, the more questions I asked, the more I felt like, okay, maybe, maybe I, maybe this is my exit. Maybe this is where I can get off, you know, the freeway and I can make it work. I can figure something else out. And, um, I was able to. So once I had the conversation with my parents in 2012, um, so pause. Yeah. As you were gearing up toward that conversation, sure. did you feel like you had to have a backup plan ready for them? Yes. Like a distraction. Like, Absolutely. Okay, mom and dad, I'm not doing this, but. Yeah, so I'm mean, gonna actually rewind a little bit. So when I was also going to medical school, I was meant I was trying to get into an MBA MD program. Wow! So just it, to be an extra overachiever. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. I took three interest exams for grad school. I took the M and the MCATs, the GMATs, and then the GRE. Wow. Um. So the GRE was like my safety plan. Was my backup. I was like, okay, if I don't get into any medical school, if I don't get into any. Um, business school, at least I can get into some grad program just to like get some masters in something. And I knew that was going to be education because I loved working with kids. It was something kind of like transgential from what I was doing. Oh, so you had a plan A, plan B, plan C. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm on, I'm on plan H right now, I feel like, <laughs> quite honest. But, um, but yeah, so for me, I just, had like here are your options. This is this is the these are you know choose your own adventure. And I didn't want to feel like I didn't have something to present them because they know how I am and I know how they are too. And I think that was why it was a little it, it was an easier pill for them to swallow. Or I was not going to just like sit around for another year and figure out my life or whatever. I was like, yeah. okay, no, I'm going to actually do something. I interrupted you while you were saying. What drew you to education? Oh, yeah. So, um, 
a lot of my part-time jobs because in undergrad I had a multitude of jobs. I worked as a pollster. I worked as a uh, night auditor at a hotel for a number of years. I, you know, I served um, at a few restaurants. I always had some side hustle. I DJed. I was just doing all the things Mm -hmm. I could to like pay rent, pay for school, whatever I needed to to get by. And my favorite little side hustle I did was tutoring and that was one of the few little side hustles that I had that barely paid but I liked it so much that I didn't really care um part of it was like I will DJ you know this really shitty you know bar thing for a couple of weeks before but so I can like you know tutor these kids at the boys and girls club down the street from my house because I wow. liked it so much because I just I looked forward to it and um I was starting to you know have like bonding you know and um really appreciating the relationships that i was building with these kids and um it was something that i thought okay well if all else fails if i don't get in medical school if i don't get into business school i can be a teacher and i wouldn't hate my life wow you know, it would be something that like i could really do and it wouldn't pay much but you know there's always kids to teach yeah and at, it's so funny that yeah. your plan c was like other is is such a noble and great and hard and amazing profession like my so so many people's plan c is like well if all else fails i can just go be a surf instructor in costa rica or you know like <laughs> other people's plan oh, yeah. c is lazy oh, and no. yours is like yeah it's it's so bad like gosh i yeah i don't know i mean we can talk about this later but like even right now like the work that i'm doing is i hate using this word but like altruistic mm. like it's just constantly trying to I don't know. I just, I, I like, I like dedicating my time to try to help people as much as I can. And, um, I'm not sure where that guilt comes from, where I feel like I have to, but maybe it's the Virgo sun. It, it has to be. It has to be like, this has to have a purpose. This yeah, has to have a mission. I need to it. serve others. Um, yeah. okay. So another question about your plans, BCD, et cetera. Sure. Were they a secret or were they something that you kind of discussed openly with the people in your life. Oh, no, it was always a secret. Yeah. I was always kind of scheming. Um, I think also just because I I have a tendency to think that everything that I say, including the last 20 minutes of this conversation, is really stupid. No, <laughs> so, I know how you feel, but so, it's not. And so I'm like, oh, my God, I sound like a total idiot. No one no one cares what I think. And I... I literally asked you to come talk to me for an hour about what you think because I, I care and I think then, everyone else will care, too. I appreciate that. But also part of it's like, oh, God, well, good luck. Um, So I'm constantly finding that urge of, like, you know, self-deprecation and, you know, realizing that what I have to say has meaning and that... um. I am somebody that can, you know, offer people advice, but I think um, when I'm working on projects or ideas, I'm, there's always this hesitation of like opening up. It's like, oh God, because it's so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I have lots of difficulty of being vulnerable with new people or like I... Like, I um, mean, mentioned before, like, are my best friends in the room, but like, he's known me for a long time and he knows a lot about me, but like, stuff that very, very, very few people know about me because it takes me so long to open up. Um, I mean, I think it may have taken like a couple of years for us to like really be like as close as we are now because it's like, okay, I can trust you yeah. and I can like 
throw all this at me, uh, throw at this in, at you, and I know that you can handle it because you know I have built up this this wall between you and me, and I'm slowly breaking it, you know, down. And um, I think in the way that I approach projects or the way that I approach any kind of work that I'm doing, I I'm very secretive about it until I know it's perfect. Or, you know, like I, I joke about like how like, okay, everything's perfect. Now I can go outside. Like it's not like, all right, I gotta gotta make sure that this is that way and that's that way. Okay, cool. Now I can like do other things. Yeah. And a career ambition is it's like a catch twenty two, because if you're not doing it yet, you're not good at it yet. Yeah. And it's really hard to tell someone, Oh, I plan to get good enough at this thing. Mm-hmm to do it for money for the rest of my life. It's like so vulnerable to say that. It's so vulnerable. And, you know, um, when I decided to be a teacher, I was, I was so scared in a way that like I hadn't been before because, you know, like I mentioned, um, being a doctor was all I had known from the time I was eight years old. Like I drank, slept, ate science in a way that I, hadn't really let myself do to anything else really i had other interests but there were only interests there were like hobbies there weren't the thing that i was dedicating most of my brain energy to Mm. so when i did you know pursue the masters it was a year and, and some change program i kind of just put my whole heart into it and it was terrifying because I was like oh god this is maybe this is a mistake I was constantly second guessing myself and I was a teacher for a little bit and I wait we're we're speeding through this too much I have one more question about telling your parents okay did they what what, were they like great being a teacher sounds awesome go for it Um, were there some concerns there was a lot of questions a lot of follow-up questions um I think my dad's biggest follow-up question was like what kind of teacher do you want to be Mm, get specific yeah and i think he was really nervous about about like he was afraid that i wanted to be like a a teacher that could get cut because mm. like you know he's like you can't be an arts teacher like you can't be like a musician teacher you can't be like in a in a job that you know they can replace you with like kids need science kids need art kids need to know how to write you know how to do math and they know how to like and they need to know how the world works did you want to be a science teacher i did want to be a science teacher okay so so we can we can skip back a little bit so um that conversation went okay there were some security concerns oh yeah there was always a lot of that and i think my my mother was the one who was asking most of the questions i think my dad was kind of like well you know we'll figure it out you know we didn't raise a dumbass so so when you were going through the master's program and you were like Uh, is this a huge mistake? Like, what were the bad scenarios running through your head? Like, what did you think could go wrong? Um, and it was, it was a couple of red flags early on. And it's part of the reason why I'm not teaching now, but, um, it was administration. It comes down to the administration for me. Um, the problem wasn't the students. So that was the best part of every day. It was like talking to them and just being like slapped with adorableness. Like kids are the best. Mm-hmm. I love kids. They're so funny. They're so weird. And like kid logic is my favorite. Like the way their brain works, like things that you would never think of as an adult, but then you think about when you're a kid, like, oh, that makes total sense if I was a child. Um, I can't think of any like examples right now, but I think just because everything's so new for them and they don't know the complexities of life yet, they don't understand why people make certain decisions because, you know, they're just learning what a decision even is. 
Yeah. But um, seeing them every day and seeing them come alive when they, you know, realize that this thing can create this thing. Um, I taught sixth grade science. Wow. So sixth grade um, is the best, I think, as far as like levels goes, because you get to learn about everything. And it's, like, and it's the last year before you kind of start only learning about biology, only learning about chemistry, only learning about physics. It's kind of a catch all. Mm. I mean, I was able to teach robotics. I was able to teach, you know, physics. I was geology, botany. Like, I was able wow. to teach, like, you're teaching 12 year olds about robots. That sounds like the coolest job ever. Yeah, exactly. It was so much fun. Meteor you know it was like yeah. just catch all so it was really really fun um but i think when i was in grad school it was the it was administration that um and just like the the politics of education which we learn in grad school to a certain degree especially if you, when you to become like a teacher's assistant and start working in a school and kind of see the relationship between like the teachers and administration and how that could be either really great or really bad mm. and um it was, I saw a couple of, you know, red flags early. I'm like, okay, good to know, you know, and just keeping tabs on that and how those experiences or those particular scenarios would eventually come into my own professional when I become like an actual teacher in my own class. Mm-hmm. And when I came back to Chicago and was teaching, it was hard. Um, CPS is the third largest um, school market um in the country um after new york and la of course just because like it's the third largest city um and there is there's a lot with cps and the teachers union they're constantly at odds there's just a lot of bureaucratic red tape that goes into education especially in chicago and there's the standardized tests that impede on a lot of the curriculum especially if you're a low-performing school to the point where, like, your budget depends on how well these kids do on their exams. And mm. so what happens is that the curriculum is taken a back seat, and you have to make sure these kids pass the exam so you can keep the lights on. And I did it for a couple of years, and I was like, yo, <laughs> I did not come to education for this. Yeah. Because you're, you're not teaching anymore. No one's having a good time. You're yeah. training. You're training kids. And... It was it was really hard and it was a hard pill to swallow because I was like I yeah so um and it's part of the reason why I'm not teaching right now um I definitely am open to going back to teaching at some point but mm-hmm. um until things get a little bit better I just don't know if I could go back because I just I I was struggling in a way that I hadn't really expected I had saw some of the early signs in the New York system because they're similar but it's really hard in Chicago as far as that goes we haven't talked about places which I think is fascinating because a lot of times people describe their lives as like where they were Mm-hmm. And I have no idea where you were for all of this. So okay. you were, did you do your master's here? Yeah. yeah. I did my master's NYU. here. Yeah. So I did my master's here. I was in an undergrad in Chicago. So yeah, I was jumping back and forth here a lot. It's funny how pe- some people like the, the location of each life phase is like the main feature of that phase of life. Like yeah. people will talk about like, oh, and those were my New York years. Now moving on to my Chicago years. But you're like, you're all about the content. What was happening? Yeah. It doesn't matter where it was. Yeah, and I think, and that's how I felt. I mean, because, like, my time here, at least then, was so checked out. I was just 
in grad school. I was barely here. I was here for like a little bit over a year. And it was just like kind of just flew by. And I, I was, it was kind of like a revolving door. I was, mm-hmm. And then I went right back to Chicago. Um, and I think because I wanted to teach in Chicago. That's where I wanted to be. I was a CPS kid, Chicago public school kid. And I wanted to be one of those kids. I wanted to teach those kids again. And... um being on the other side of it, it kind of changed everything. Yeah. So this is the second time in your story that you've had to let go of a dream that did not serve you anymore. A dream deferred. Yeah. Well, a dream like very rightfully deferred to grow your spirit better. But what, like, did you learn from the first time about how better to like let go? Yeah, I think... Um, and now it sounds kind of corny, but I was kind of like, am I following my bliss? And, mm. or like, um, maybe not that hippy dippy, but I think I had to come to terms with, is this something that I could do for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Just like being in this position where I had to kind of just take a seat about the things I wanted to teach these children or, you know, how I think things should be run or should I just, like, kind of follow the rules and, you know, be another cog in the administration, the cog in the big machine that is education because it is, like everything else, a machine. And I kind of just, like, said, I don't know, man. Like, I'm not sure if this is what I want and it was really, really devastating because I wasn't really sure at this point because, like, I had no other, like, skills. I was like, what am I going to do with my life now? And I, you know, I definitely thought about maybe just, like, just going on autopilot, too, and just kind of just going through the motions. It was definitely on the table because I didn't really know what else to do at that point. Yeah. But... You were, um, like at a point where doing the same thing almost seemed easier than finding something new to do. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's like the, the, the emotional turmoil of trying to find a new thing is so rough. Yeah. And it's funny. You don't talk about this turmoil in round one when you were younger, cause you had plans B and C you were like, Oh, well, if not this, then this, and if not this, then this, and now you've run through a few more scenarios. Mm-hmm. Did you have in this time in your brain plans D, E, and F? It sounds like not as much. No, not really. I think I had uh, like skills, like I, like I in college, I had like my side hustles, but they were not, there was no longevity in them. Yeah. There was like, I mean, I could, I was like, I maybe I could just be a DJ. I was like, no, that sounds horrible. I can just be a professional DJ forever. <laughs> That's like even less. You you can picture that even less doing that for 40 years than you can yeah. being a teacher. Exactly. Like, 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 this is not something that you just do. This is something that you do for a little bit and yeah. then you go on something else or you do it on the side, but it's not like your full income. And even if so, I mean, it's for me, it just didn't feel like, not even lucrative, but it didn't feel like it was something that I could do without, you know, losing a little bit of what I liked about it. Hmm. Yeah. You don't want to apply capitalism to everything you love. Precisely. Even though I tend to do that. Yeah. I tend to do that. Um, I, that's like our generation, man. The gig economy. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question. I think this is a very like useful transferable skill is like when you are completely out of ideas, what's the exercise or the process you go through to like brainstorm some? 
like how like what did you literally do with yourself oh my gosh um well i, I found a job i mean that was like step one was find a job that you know was i can you know i can actually do um but a job that kind of was in the wheelhouse of being you know at least the mission was good and so of course i ended up in nonprofits. Hmm. so um i ended up working at a nonprofit in chicago for a little bit and it was actually a nonprofit that my mother worked for in the 90s my mother was a social worker hmm. so um she worked there and when i got a job there i told her like yeah so i'm working at this place she was like are you serious like yeah and there was it's funny like a few people actually used to remembered her wow yeah because uh, this place is a place that the retention was very good mm. um they had people who worked there for like 30 years that's rare and nonprofit. exactly um and at the time they eventually were in like you know c-suite positions but they had been there for a minute um even like you know like uh, the personal assistant to the CFO, she had been there for ten years. Mm. So, and she was pretty young. Like she got, she got, she got there like right out of college, and then kind of like rose to the ranks and was like the, you know, the um, not personal assistant. I am, I should say, the executive assistant. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah. So it was a place where people could, you know, eventually rise to the ranks or at least have job security in a way because it was a nonprofit that had been around for over a hundred years and still exists today. Um, but. It was a place where I felt like, okay, I could do this for a while. I'm, I was working in the education department, so I was helping um, do curriculum for, um, they have, um, so the nonprofit, I won't say their name, but um, but they work with refugees. They also work with um, low-income families and help with housing and health. But then they also have... Um, we also have uh, centers where they, like, you know, have curriculum for education. And so that's why the site I worked on, a lot of the um, um, families who, you know, are coming in from, like, refugees, and they have them, you know, in places, they still, like, kind of, like, homeschool the kids. And so I was working on that curriculum for that. That uh, sounds awesome and, like, really related to the stuff that you were into then. Yeah, precisely. So I was like, okay, great. And so one of the side hustles that I had at the time was making radio it was something that i had always played around with my dad in um an undergrad he he um got his first bachelor it's not the first bachelor's but he got his bachelor's in broadcast communications oh cool and so um that's why he needed to get a job in um go to grad school because you know you can kind of hit a wall and then you kind of need to like you know possibly move somewhere else and so my dad eventually got his master's in computer science but um when um i was you know in undergrad i you know i interned at a music comp- uh, music blog i um i did like little things that were kind of just like interesting and transgender to radio um I, I volunteered at radio stations i really enjoyed radio i thought that it was fun i liked talking to people i didn't care i didn't care about my voice so much but i was just interested in talking to other people mm. or hearing stories yeah and just like the, the idea of archiving stories is really fascinating to me and um um, in 2015, I started a podcast with um, my best friend, and who's in the room? I can't not room. say it. He's in the room. <sighs> um, and, yeah, and um, it was right. You know, it was like in the height of um, you know, y'all are pre-serial, right? Yeah, like I was doing 
like little radio things on my own pre-serial and then serial hit in fall 2014 and we were already kind of like in development of what we were going to make and it came out in early 2015 and we did it for two years and two and a half actually and it was like a really fun thing to do it was a show that we didn't really have a I don't know, mission. I don't know. It's kind of hard to describe what that show was. And I think that was part of its charm. Um, we just dedicated every week we are to put something out, no matter what it was. Either it was going to be an interview with somebody, or we we're going to make a weird fiction, or we were going to do a little mini radio doc or whatever. It was a podcast where we kind of just didn't really care what was happening we just kind of just made sure we had something coming out and i think that was part of its charm we um and had like a little following because of that because um it went all over the place yeah yeah it was called open-ended and i miss that show a lot sometimes yeah yeah it's i mean i think i miss about that show not so much the weekly thing but like working with james and working with um just being able to create and have like a a collaborator who i knew was bringing just as much as i was and that's what i miss and this had no professional ambition necessarily you were just like wanting an outlet yeah it was just like a thing that you know we both were very interested in making radio um it was something that we had both been longtime fans of and we love podcasts, and it was just, I think, a creative outlet that I could actually do. Um, for a long time, I had like wax product about like I'm not an artist, I can't do these things. Oh my gosh, I really want to talk about that. Yeah. So, what was your journey like with that? Like the the buzzwords like a creative person versus not. Did you feel like you were not a creative person? Not at all. I mean, I I'm like in college, I messed around with photography and I did like some photography coverage for festivals for a little bit. What was another one of my side hustles was photography. But even then I never felt like I was particularly great. I was just I I mean, I look back at like the stuff that I did. I'm like, oh, I was actually I'm not bad. Like it's good. I mean, it's not like amazing, but it's like, huh. Like good job me but like it's you know it was something i could really you know take full ownership over and i had surrounded myself with a lot of creative friends and a lot of my friends at the time like after college and like between college and grad school my friends were like deeply attacked a lot of like you know visual designers a lot of you know before ux designers really taking off you know there were like visual designers and Mm -hmm. not all those people are ux designers but um they all felt like they were very much in their creative space and i was not in that at all i was you know i was a teacher and i wasn't a teacher i was like a science nerd i just like i that i didn't really feel like feel like that was you know particularly artistic at all Mm. i mean it was certainly a craft but it was not in the kind of way that like my all my artist friends were you know having art gallery openings and having you know they're doing these residencies and all these like cool you know art things and i always felt like a fly on the wall in that where I appreciate it but I didn't really feel like I could contribute at all yeah which really reminds me of the comment you made a little bit earlier about just like it feeling too vulnerable to trust that your contributions to people matter like so much an artist or a creative person is just someone who believes in themselves enough to like commit something to paper or to audio or to 
paint canvas. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think like um like you mentioned before, vulnerability. I have so much apprehension to be vulnerable. And I was just really afraid to like take ownership. And for a long time I didn't even consider myself an artist, even though I was creating work as with a podcast. Like, but is podcast art? Is audio <laughs> art? And I was I was having this conversation constantly with James, like, what, am I an artist? And he was like, Yes, you're an artist. So I'm like Aww. and I was like, Are you sure? He's like, Yes, I'm sure. I relate to this so, so much, I have to say. This is really a heartening conversation. Yeah. And it's you know, only last year or two have I really kind of owned that word in a way that um, I never really thought myself at this time in my life that I'd be doing um, something that's artistic at all um, because I've always I've always been the kind of left brain person I've never a very analytical very in my head kind of you know not very logical part of my brain I never let my my creative tuition, tuition, yeah, yeah. I was like, emotions. What are those? Hmm. I don't so know her. I have. A, I've never heard of her. Um, <laughs> exactly. I have. I want to talk about how it came to be that this is now your job. But mm. I also, before we get to that, want to talk about spoiler alert. This is now Cher's job. And given that, do do you, as a left brain logical person? experience some sort of imposter syndrome oh my God, absolutely like oh this job isn't as real i'm not saving lives i'm not like can, like is there a struggle there a step further yeah there was a point where like i had imposter syndrome about having imposter syndrome <laughs> i so um so so james and i after about a year after making open-ended we started a podcast collective called post loudness and the week that came out we got a lot of press it happened to be one of the few days of 2016 that was kind of a slow news day mm. again this might be a very self-deprecating thing that i'm saying as right now like it was a great thing i think it's i think i still think it's a great thing would have gotten coverage even on a big news day precisely yeah. but still um so i was having a conversation with a friend about it and i was like yeah i know it's really cool or whatever and he was like that's great he's like you know you don't have to have him like i mean we get it you know it's a good imposter like i don't have imposter syndrome what are you talking about i don't have imposter syndrome like are you having imposter syndrome for having imposter syndrome <laughs> like okay maybe i don't know maybe so yeah it, it's definitely i didn't go to school for this you know it's something that i kind of just fell into but again that is also kind of you know me downplaying all the work that i did and all the training that i you know self-taught you know looking for hours at, on youtube and studying and taking you know countless hours of notes and you know doing the work making a product every single week i mean that is in itself you know a form of training totally and i you know i still to this day kind of think like how did they let me do this hmm. who you know how dare um, you know, who gave you permission? You know, yeah. it was like very, um, very self-deprecating, but also kind of being realistic about it because of um, my past experiences and my past training as a teacher or as a medical professional. It's something that I had so much dedication to is this training and then falling to a job that i have not falling i shouldn't say that but being in a position right now well, let's talk about it did yeah. you fall into what how did this career path turn this way sure so i was feeling kind of luckluster at the nonprofit. i enjoyed what i was doing but i 
found myself becoming more and more excited about what I was doing with radio, making this, it felt like I was coming alive in a way that I hadn't really saw myself as. Um, again, you know, left brain, right brain. Mm. I never really allowed my right brain to take over. And when I let that happen, it's like, oh, I can write. Oh, I can, you know, edit this. Oh, I have ideas. I can tell stories. I can do these things. And it was something that I didn't really feel like I was ever really allowed to explore. And so when I was given this avenue, it was just kind of pouring out of me in a way that I never knew. And um, when I got in a position where I could theoretically go freelance and do this, it was kind of like opening Pandora's box. It was like, okay, we're doing this. We are we are making this happen wow. in a real way. And it was so scary, but um but in a way that like I felt I had a freedom that I didn't really feel like I had in my past professions because it was something that I was fostering on my own. It wasn't something that I, you know, paid somebody money to teach me this thing. It wasn't something that I had to apply for. It was something I was kind of just making out of my own and it was thrilling it was exciting and it's like oh cool i can i don't need to i don't need to feel like i have to you know put my pound of flesh in or like i have to you know i have to pay some debt yeah i can just make things and if people like it cool you know that makes it great i mean it's a big great but like makes it like makes you know whatever i mean i'm what i'm trying to say is i felt like i could just make things for the sake of making things and if i got paid for it bonus right and um and and like um about this time last year um the job that i have now it was just starting to brew i was approached by several people for this position um different external agencies like hey we're looking for somebody like you for this thing and you know it was more than one person kind of approached me for the same position and they didn't know that all five all the different people were talking they they didn't realize that i have relationships with all these people Hmm. and it was kind of like you should go for this job you should go for this job and then i realized oh it's all the same job (laughs) it was really funny and all points converged it was like you were gonna get that job precisely and it was kind of like you know we're not really sure it's gonna be yet but we really want somebody who kind of has some agency in this field and you know we think that you could do this and i said okay and yeah so now i work on this um this online news outlets nonprofit, which also i like a lot too um that's all my nonprofit roots it has a mission yeah. and it's you know it's altruistic um as an submission, we're essentially trying to bridge the divide that's in the state of Illinois. Um, so like New York, there is a division. There's, you know, Chicago and then the rest of the state. Mm. Um, much like how there's New York and then the rest of the state. Um, down instead of, um, how it refers to upstate New York, even though it's like in Hudson, which is like 45 minutes away, upstate New York, like that's not upstate, that's like across the river. But um, in Chicago, or rather in Illinois, anything below I-80, which is very much still in Chicagoland area, is considered downstate. Hmm. And 
there is kind of like the shadow of Chicago and people um, in central or southern Illinois, because I try not to refer to downstate as downstate because it just feels it's it's, it's kind of like a a a, a dog whistle. Um, Interesting, yeah, especially for like in conservative circles, it's definitely a dog, a dog whistle for certain conversations. But hmm. um, so central and southern Illinois, they're in the shadow of of Chicago. Chicago is this behemoth of a city. It kind of makes the state blue. It's there's blue spots all over the state, but Chicago is so centralized to how the way the rest of the state works. Mm-hmm. There's a animosity and kind of a chip on everybody else's shoulder. And so, like, one Illinois' mission is to try to bridge that divide and talk about how, you know, a family in the inner city have the same issues as someone who lives in rural Illinois. And they're, they both want, you know, good education for their kids. They both want, you know, you know, good... Um, job opportunities and that we're all the same. We just happen to have different, you know, immediate conflictions, but, you know, the same, uh, we all want the same outcome. And so we do that through, um, long form journalism on the site. We have video content explainers about what's going on in the state. And then we have podcasts. So I produce two podcasts currently. Um, our flagship podcast is called Best People. And that title has come, it comes from the, um, Illinois Wick tribe that Illinois gets their name from. Oh. And that literally means the best people. So it's extremely like Illinois focused and it's about the people and stories that make the state great. So we talk about, you know, issues like infrastructure or, you know, the diaper divide in the country or, um, or in the state rather, or, you know, women's health. And we talk about it through a human interest story. And our second podcast is launched in September is called In the Milkweeds. And milkweeds are a, um, it's local to Illinois, but it's a milkweed. It's where monarch butterflies usually, you know, land around. Oh. That's where they get their pollen from. Yeah. So in that show, it's a podcast, your audio ballot card for Illinois elections. So every week we like tackle a different subject like infrastructure or taxes or healthcare and how um, the candidates who are running for office, you know, either like this past season was about the midterms. So how each of those candidates were handling that issue and just presenting the evidence because since we're a nonprofit, we can't endorse, mm. but we can say, okay, this person wants to do this with healthcare. This person wants to deal with this with healthcare. Like journalism. <laughs> Precisely. You know, we're not imagine that. Yeah, exactly. But just kind of saying like, these are the facts mm-hmm. and, you know, if this is something that you're interested in or this is a person that aligns with your issues or your viewpoint, you know, you go out and vote and do that. But essentially, we're trying to set up people so when they get into the ballot box, they have an educated ballot. They're not just voting all blue or all red or whatever they're doing, but they know why they're doing it. Right. And we didn't want to tell them how to vote at all because legally we can't. But um, but we did want them to feel like they are confident and I know that a lot of people, when they go and vote, especially in Illinois, there are a lot of offices to fill, a lot of check marks to, a lot of boxes to check. Yeah, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. So my whole pursuit with that podcast is just like, okay, this is where people are landing. This is where they feel about these issues. And so, 
you know, you kind of know where you're getting into. Yeah. And so, um, season two is coming out in January. It's going to be about the Chicago mayoral race because as of today, we have 17 people running for Whoa. mayor of Chicago because that's going to be a fascinating one. Yeah. Can't wait to listen. Yeah. And because in Illinois, specifically in Chicago, it's extremely blue ticket all the way around. Mm-hmm. So there is no red team or blue team. It's just, you know, Democrats seeing it really into the nuances about what makes this person different than this Democrat. So I'm excited about that one for sure. Yeah. Let's plug that. Check out Best People and In the Milkweeds. Yeah. Very exciting. I'm curious, did had this like interest and passion for like local and state politics had had that been brewing all along? Something you've always been interested in? Yeah, it's something that I, I um, you know, like I said, I have my hats in a lot of different rings, but like um, almost always I had Canvas or I phone banked for right. You uh, did polling. I did polling. Yeah, wow. it's my first job in college. Was I was a pollster? I would call people up and say like, so do you support this candidate or do you? What's your rating on the president or whatever? Because huh. I did rating for. Uh, W. Bush. Yikes. Yeah. This is is 06. So, like, 06 was um, Bush. And then, um, and any Illinoisans out there, or honestly, if you remember your Illinois history, Rob Lagojevich was the candidate who was running for 06. And he was my first vote in, like, ever. Wow. I voted him in president. Because, like, at the time, he was fine. People loved Lagojevich in Illinois until we didn't love Lagojevich. But he happens with those Illinois politicians. Yeah. They seem great until they're not. Yeah. So, yeah, it was always something in my head. And so when I eventually was like in the running for this position um, that I have now, um, I was kind of like putting the fillers out because I wanted to do something um, political. I wanted to try to, you know, I was thinking about maybe like making like a little short series about, you know, politicians who are running for office, Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, following them around. So this just sort of plugged into an interest that you had. I need to share with you and the listeners this like aha moment I've had during this interview. And that's (laughs) like, we talked about millennials, the gig economy, and it's so hard for us. I think people born in our generation to picture doing something their whole life. This question of what am I going to do with my life seems like endless and unanswerable. And it's like, it's just hard. It's hard to picture what you're going to continue doing for your whole life. But I feel like I've learned a secret from you. And that's that just never run out of things that you love and Mm -hmm. that light you up because then you'll never run out of stuff to do. Yeah. I I think I came into like, I I came into this idea, um, like maybe earlier this year and I was like, you know what? I don't think the job that I'll have in 20 years exists yet. Yes. I don't think it exists yet. You just have to stay passionate and stay engaged with the world around you and the new cool jobs in 20 years will come your way. Yeah. So I think just, I mean, I don't know if there's any, um, to your listeners out there. Yeah. I love, I love like a final region to the listeners. Yeah. Um, I think just, um, just, yeah, you mentioned like just, Find, just continue liking doing things you like and you know sometimes those jobs might turn into a job and sometimes they won't but as long as you're making things and doing things and constantly just trying to you know i don't know i i'm trying to come up with something that's like a little more you know uh, no i think take it takes an hour to distill this message yeah. so that's an amazing message to leave on um, thank you so much for being here. It's an hour's past already. Wow. Yeah, it flies by and I have some quick ending credits to do. So again, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. 
We're announcing that we will be launching an after-school program for local teenagers starting next year to learn media literacy through media making. Um, If you're interested in participating or donating, volunteering your time or money, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash afterschool. My theme song is by Nation of Language. Thank you to Cher and thank you to the silent James for introducing me to Cher. And (laughs) I'll be back next week. Bye. Thank you.